This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Around 20,000 demonstrators marched through downtown on Saturday, and other smaller marches and rallies took place across the city as part of a weekend of peaceful protest. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has her days and nights filled right now, managing a large protest movement, a series of announced police reforms, and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Mayor Lightfoot joins us now to discuss those topics and to answer questioners that you left on our voicemail. Mayor Lightfoot, welcome back to Reset. Uh, Thank you, Jen. And let me just say, uh, I understand that this is your uh, last week in Chicago and you will definitely be missed and we wish you well. Well, I appreciate that. Well, yesterday afternoon, you decided to end Chicago's 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. It had been in place since May 30th when we began seeing not only protests, but some looting. Activists in the American Civil Liberties Union said the curfew went too far and was too vague. Why did you feel that curfew was necessary and why did you end it yesterday? It was a a very, very tough decision for me to think about imposing um, a curfew. You know, I'm old enough to remember the 60s and 70s, the whole law and order Republican-led effort in many of the nation's cities against civil rights marchers. So that's the context in which I think of curfews. But in a lot of consultation with our police superintendent in particular, what became clear is that there were elements in the protest that weren't peaceful um, and that came for a fight. And so we wanted to give the opportunity for peaceful protest to run its course. And we didn't do what other cities did, which is to start mass arresting people after the curfew. But we felt like this was a necessary tool um, to help us identify the people of goodwill who were out there um, righteously exercising their First Amendment rights and the other people that were out there with a very, very different and an oftentimes criminal agenda. But after um, seeing multiple days of peaceful protest, we felt like we were in a position where we could um, lift it. Um, And so we did. Every every single day um, that the curfew was in place, I started my day and ended my day talking to the superintendent about a range of issues, but the curfew was top among them. And, you know, I followed... Um, a lot of the uh, direction that he was given about what was necessary to make sure that we were maintaining public safety all across the city. And we believe that we got to a place yesterday uh, where we could lift it, and I was grateful to do so. What do you say to the argument that the curfew effectively served to criminalize peaceful protest, and also that for essential workers who were suddenly you know, without public transportation, uh, when bus lines were shut down, that, that it put an undue um, responsibility on them. What do you say to those concerns? You've asked, I think, two very different questions. Uh, the first is <clears throat> that a curfew criminalizes peaceful protests. That's just simply 
not the case in Chicago. As I mentioned, we did not use a curfew as a way to just do mass arrest. Um, as you saw over the course of the week, there were many protests that ran way past the curfew. Um, and we, as a city, supported and protected that righteous uh, uh, expression of First Amendment rights. So it's just simply um, not so that we were using the curfew as a subterfuge or anything else. Um, you asked a second question about um, the challenges with public uh, public transportation. Um, again, we are the only public uh, transit system in the country that didn't shut down during the course of the pandemic or substantially reduce um, our service hours. The changes that we made last week came in part at the behest of the amalgamated transit union workers and their union heads who were fearful of, of the safety of their employees. Unfortunately, we had uh, instances across the city where literally people were getting on buses and threatening the bus drivers and threatening other people on the buses. And so hearing the really serious concerns of the heads of those unions about the safety of their employees, also hearing from the head of the CTA that said he was concerned that he wouldn't be able to run um, the CTA safely at night and overnight, I, of course, had to respond to those concerns, and we did. We've been hearing reports from listeners like Megan in Ukrainian Village about police misconduct at peaceful protests. Mm -hmm. Let's listen. A few days ago on Instagram, she told people to report incidents of police misconduct to 311. And I called 311, and they were very nice, and they gave me the actual number to call, which is um, COPA, the um, Office of Police Accountability. And I just wonder, does she not know the right number? Mayor Lightfoot, what is the best way for people to report police misconduct at protests? Because Megan is not the only person we've heard to, heard from who says police were antagonistic or in, in some case escalating interactions with protesters. The, the best way is 311. It's simple. People can remember it, and then they will get connected up with COPA, uh, which is it sounds like essentially uh, what happened with Megan. Obviously, people can also go online uh, to COPA's website, uh, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, and file complaints directly. And the number for COPA we should mention is 312-743-COPA. That's 312 2672. Now, when we turn to this question about police reforms, you announced a series of reforms to be implemented with that 90 days. That includes more training, community involvement, officer wellness programs, and more. Talk about how you're approaching this question. I think in this time when there's, there's a heightened concern about the legitimacy of policing, a lot of people feel like um, they have been abused and mistreated by the police. In order to restore legitimacy, the community has to be a part of that process. And I will say I've been frustrated at the slow pace of uh, the consent decree process, and that's why I put the department on the clock on these measures that are specifically designed to bring the community into how officers are trained, 
um, into the cultural literacy that officers need to be able to effectively do their job. Right now, if you're an officer and you get assigned to a new district, what you get is basically the crime statistics, but you don't get any sense of the texture and nuance um, and beauty of our 77 communities. And we need to change that around, and we need to do that with the community leading that transformation of how officers are equipped with tools to understand the communities that they are serving. So these are some things that I've been talking about now, it feels like for four or five years um, since we did the police accountability uh, task force work, and I'm in a position now as mayor to implement them. I prodded the police department. I've encouraged them to take ownership of it. Now I'm demanding that it get done. At the same time, Mayor Lightfoot, activists say, you know, we're seeing examples of police brutality during peaceful protests against mm-hmm. police brutality. And, and that says to them that departments need to not just be reformed, but fundamentally restructured. So <laughs> are we talking about a question of reform or does something more fundamental need to happen? Well, uh, reform is fundamental if we do it right. You know, bringing community members into the police academy to teach courses on their communities, the history of Chicago, but also to talk about the pain that they've endured and suffered at the hands of the police, that's pretty transformative stuff. Um, So I think that um, we have an opportunity in this moment to turn the pain that people are experiencing into transformative opportunities to really rethink what public safety should look like in communities across Chicago as led and directed um, by members of the community. It's got to be a partnership. And for too long, the community's been locked out of having any real substantive say. And I think we've got an opportunity to turn that around. And that's exactly um, what I'm recommending and pushing for as part of these reforms. Remember, Chicago's under a consent decree. And there's a lot of transformation that's going to happen throughout the course of our time with the independent monitor and federal court supervision. And we need to make sure that that work is much more visible to people in the community so they see exactly what's happening and have um, transparency around the pace at which it's happening. Well, that question about community involvement actually takes me to our next question from Dina in Rogers Park. Let's listen. What will she do about the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability's ordinance for civilian oversight commission that is languishing in committee right now? And how will she push that through for a vote? And what will she do to fulfill her campaign promise of having a civilian oversight commission for police accountability? And the second question is, what is she doing regarding the reform of police contracts? So questions Mm -hmm. there from Dina about the latest on creating a civilian oversight Mm -hmm. commission for police accountability and reform of police contracts. Your response? Um, So two questions there, right? One is GAPA. Um, My team has been working diligently, diligently for months with the GAPA folks um, to reach um, some uh, agreement on the final issues in um, standing up GAPA. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able to bridge the the final gaps and, and on a couple of key issues. Um, it, we have been actively involved uh, with GAPA, their council, um, and also we've um, gotten the Public Safety Committee itself involved. 
I'm actually scheduled to have another meeting about that uh, later today. So we're very keenly focused on uh, making GAPO reality. Can you give us an insight on what those, those remaining issues are? I don't want to get into the specifics because I really think that this is, we're kind of at a critical time, but they're really down to one or two issues. I think we've reached agreement on the vast majority of them, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to get the last couple resolved. Regarding the police contracts, you're not going to find a more fierce advocate for really rethinking the police contracts than me. Um, I have been involved in this work now for directly for four or five years. I've met with and helped lead uh, a number of uh, working groups around um, the things that need to be changed in police contracts, um, from uh, accepting anonymous complaints uh, to making sure that um, we hold officers much more accountable and have a streamlined uh, disciplinary system um, so that we can do that, and it's not years and years um, in the works. So we um, are in the process of finalizing, we hope, with the arbitrator, accountability measures for the sergeants, lieutenants, and captains, and then we uh, will start uh, the work with the FOP contract. But my view is that these police contracts have to be opportunities where we speak our values as a community. They have to be. It can't just be transactional and just about dollars and cents. And I know we're going to have a fight on our hands. We've had a fight on our hands with the contracts that we've been taking on so far, we're going to have an even greater fight uh, with the FOP, particularly given the new leadership, but it's a fight that we must have. And I'm committed to making sure that these contracts are no longer an impediment for accountability. And you mentioned new leadership. John Catanzar is uh, the new president of the FOP. As we pointed out on the show Friday, police brutality and racism are at the heart of this protest movement, but it's it's expanding mm-hmm. out from that now. Um, activists are talking about the abolition of prisons, the removal of police from schools. Last week, Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, said he'll cut as much as $150 million from the LAPD budget and reinvest that money in, in youth jobs, health initiatives, peace centers. <clears throat> what is your thinking about reallocating some of the $1.7 billion of what's budgeted for CPD here, here in Chicago to invest in similar initiatives? If you unpack, I think, um, some of the um, conversation around this issue, really what it fundamentally comes down to, to for me is people in pain saying, my communities matter, we need more resources, and we need real tangible investments. And I agree with that 100%. That's why I ran. I ran on the notion that our neighborhoods had been deprived of resources for way too long, that equity inclusion was not the North Stars and how we made decisions about where we invested. And so from the time that I took office uh, a year ago, I have been pushing hard to make sure that we live up to, I think, the promise, but also the pleas of people in communities, particularly on the south and west side, that they deserve the same kind of resources that other parts of the city have historically gotten. That's why I stood up our Invest Southwest initiative, which puts um, $750 million into 10 commercial corridors on the south and the west side, co-curated with people in those communities to make sure that we are um, putting money behind 
people's aspirations for how they want to build healthy, strong, vibrant communities. But I think the question here is is slightly different because we often hear people say that budgets are are statement values or or a statement of our values. And so what this is really about is whether we're willing to, whether you would be willing to reallocate money that right now is directed towards policing and direct that money back into communities. Well, as I said, we have made substantial investments on the south and the west side and other areas of the city, whether it's in economic development, whether it's in mental health, whether it's in um, helping support our young people, uh, whether it's in uh, violence reduction through street outreach. We've spent a lot of time and focus, and we will continue to, um, on closing um, health equity gaps um, in our city that we know result in areas of our city having health, life expectancy gaps. Those are the, exactly the kind of investments that I've committed to. We made them in this budget. We're going to make them in the next budget because that's exactly where we need to be, which is answering the need of people in, in communities and investing in them to help them build strong, healthy communities. So that work it started from day one of my administration. I'm committed to it. We continue to do it, and we will make sure that we live good, make good on uh, the promise, but also answer the pleas of people who are saying we need more investment in our communities. Because to me, fundamentally, that's what this conversation is all about. I want to stay with this question of reform for just a moment. Uh, we got this call from Clinton in Pilsen about police reform. Let's listen. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if the mayor would support the reform when there's a settlement for police misconduct, that the money comes directly out of the police budget rather than the city paying for this through taking out a bond. Mayor Lightfoot? Um, We've done a lot to make sure that the police department itself now feels um, financial pain for all these settlements and judgments. I've been a fierce, fierce advocate for this for a number of years. In the city of Chicago, year after year, we're spending $100 million on police settlements and judgments, and it never hits the police department's um, bottom line. We've moved that and changed that this year in the 2020 budget, and we're holding the police department accountable um, for uh, that work in ways that never happened before. Um, We've been working through um, our first-ever chief risk officer to identify um, what we're seeing in these lawsuits and not just slough them off as they've as happened in the past as opportunistic uh, plaintiff's lawyers. That's just not so. Given the volume of cases that get filed in the city of Chicago every year against police misconduct, we are an outlier in the nation, and that's why I've committed to doing everything that I can, including affecting the department's budget to make sure that we start to see the number of those cases down. Um, and we're not, that's not going to happen overnight, of course, um, but we're putting um, real structures in place to hold the police department accountable in ways that they never have been before. So I want to be clear, when you talk about restructuring the way uh, these settlements work, are you saying that money mm-hmm. will come directly from the CPD budget? I'm saying that it's going to have an impact on the CPT budget. Obviously, we're not going to turn around cases that have been in the works for a number of years. But part of the problem, Jen, is no one was even asking the question, why are we getting all these cases? What's happening? 
Is this a problem of training, supervision, individual officers? Those, those critical risk management questions weren't even being asked a year ago until I got into office. So we are holding the police department accountable to ask those questions and make sure that when we see that there's a problem in either training, supervision, uh, or individual officers, that there's an accountability that happens and that the lawsuits aren't just the responsibility of the law department. Dealing with those issues now is front and center and accountability for the police department in ways that has never been before in the history of the city. But concretely, when you talk about accountability for the department and for officers, what does that mean? What does that mean in dollars and cents? It it means that the superintendent, the general counsel, the police department, the head of IAD have to give account for why it is that we're seeing these kinds of allegations. We are doing triage on the front end, not waiting until the lawsuit is over, not just paying and not even calling the question around training, supervision, and individual officer accountability. You measure what you value. And what we are saying is, from a risk management standpoint, there has to be much more accountability on the part of the department to own responsibility for these lawsuits and answer these critical questions. So we hold them accountable in a way that we have not before. So I think that accountability question is one that gets, from the outside in, people don't understand what that looks like on the ground. And and Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul is again calling for the legislature to pass a bill requiring officers to be licensed by the state so -hmm. that officers are certified, they can be Mm -hmm. decertified if they're convicted of certain crimes Mm -hmm. or found um, that they have abused their power. Is this a proposal you would support? I would support it. You know, if if you have to be licensed as a manicurist and a hairdresser, certainly you should be licensed as a police officer. And I think we go, need to go further and make sure that there is an opportunity for municipalities to understand if somebody moves from Chicago to a suburb or vice versa, that we understand that officer's history so you don't get to just move from one municipality to another when there's a problem. There's got to be a lot more transparency around that. Well, I want to move to Chicago's economy. You recently created a $10 million fund to help small businesses rebuild, particularly those hit by looting on the south and west sides of Chicago. Where are those funds coming from and which businesses are eligible to apply for those funds? Well, they're coming from um, our corporate dollars um, because we know that a lot of small businesses that were hit uh, by property damage and looting, uh, many of them are not going to be able to rebuild. You can't talk about this outside of what's also happened over the last 10 weeks, which is many of these businesses um, lost substantial revenue as a result of um, the stay-at-home order, which shut down the opportunity for businesses, particularly in the service sector and restaurants, uh, to be able to um, earn a living. And then you add on top of that um, the property damage and looting that's happened. Our businesses, and particularly our small business, are hurting. Now, to be clear, we stood up a $100 million loan fund uh, at the very beginning of the shutdown and the pandemic. We then added to that a $5 million grant um, for micro-businesses, those businesses that have four employees or less. We're adding to all of that resources with another $10 million to specifically um, 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 support those businesses um, that were really uh, damaged um, in the last week. Uh, with the looting and the property damage. We're going to do this as we've done all of this with an eye towards equity. 
um, and we're working in conjunction with the Chicago Community Trust uh, to come up with specific criteria and so we can get that money out the door as quickly as possible. And we're looking to see if there are other ways um, in which we can get private sector and philanthropic dollars. That's why we're working with Chicago Community Trust to get um, the amounts of money um, that we're calling the, Sh the Together Now Fund uh, up to a billion dollars uh, or more if possible. So the $10 million that we put down is a, is a down payment. Well, I want to turn to Chicago's reopening. A number of city services mm -hmm. are back in effect today, including libraries. And we got a question from Zoe in Rogers Park. Let's take a listen. Mm -hmm. The lakefront and the 606 trail remain closed, so why are libraries reopening today? As the child of a Chicago public librarian, I'm worried about my dad. He and other library staff have become essential workers, but without a supply of KN95 masks, updated ventilation systems and strict safety protocols and PPE for the staff and public, reopening should be staggered and offer curbside pickup and online programming. In the rush to be one of the first major library systems to reopen, how can you ensure that we aren't the first to see COVID-19 casualties? So Mayor Lightfoot Zoe saying there that library staff do not have adequate PPE to keep themselves and patrons safe. Your response? Yeah, that's actually not um, accurate. As uh, hopefully she and certainly the staff know, uh, the library staff was brought back now probably two, three weeks ago um, to um, come back in, take an assessment of what they needed in um, individual libraries to be safe, plexiglass barriers to um, the kind of cleaning that needed to be done with the level of frequency, um, and of course, uh, with uh, protective materials, uh, including masks and gloves. Um, and I have a great deal of confidence in our library commissioner and the senior staff. They were very thoughtful and thorough in the plan that they put together and presented before the libraries opened up uh, today. So we, I think we've got a good plan that protects the workers, that protects the patrons that will come in. Um, and we're going to be watching this very, very closely as we are with the opening of other city uh, resources to make sure that we are, first and foremost, keeping the workers safe, but also keeping uh, library patrons safe as well. So we've only got a minute left with you, Mayor Lightfoot, and, and I find myself th thinking back to your inauguration speech. And in that speech, you focused heavily on equity, and you talked about sharing power with the people of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, as you reflect on these last few weeks, whether or not your thinking around what that looks like in practice has shifted or expanded. I think it's it's a little of both, right? It, it, what I know is that people want to be heard. They want to make sure that their lived experience is actually reflected in policy decisions. And so the, what, the thing that we've done from day one of this administration is made sure that we build deep, authentic, and lasting relationships with stakeholders across the city. Now, we're not always going to agree on every issue, but it's the authenticity of those relationships that really carries the day. And I think about what we've been through as a city in responding to COVID-19, which, by the way, is still very much part of our present. We've leaned into those relationships, whether it's around uh, racial equity, whether it's around making sure that we are feeding 
um, our folks across the city and making sure that we fulfill those needs, uh, whether it's around um, affordable housing um, or making sure that we've got plenty of quarantine and isolation space. The city itself can't do that without partnerships of people in the communities, without local experts, and, but also just local stakeholders, ordinary um, residents um, who understand what the needs are in their community far better than we're ever going to. It's those partnerships that have sustained us and really gotten us through and that we're going to need going forward. Um, the, the, in particularly the events of the last week um, have really reinforced to me the importance of making sure that people are on the journey with us, that we are listening, that we are hearing the plaintive pleas and cries from neighborhoods. That's not changed. If anything, my resolve around making sure that we continue to listen um, is even more resolute now. That's Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Mayor Lightfoot, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. For the latest on the Chicago protests in the wake of George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police and the ongoing reopening of the city during the COVID-19 pandemic, tune in to 91.5 WBEZ or go to WBEZ.org. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.